Okay, hey, how you doing, everybody? This is the John Riley Project. Welcome to the live stream. This is episode number 322 of the podcast. Wow, we're rolling. Um, got a lot in store for you today. We're going to make this kind of a fun thing. We, You know, last night I went to the Poway City Council meeting, and you're like, oh, wow, what's he going to talk about now? But there's actually a lot of really interesting things that happened at that meeting that aren't necessarily Poway specific, because a lot of these issues you know, are, are major issues in cities throughout the county. So we're going to talk a little bit about my visit to the Poway City Council, a little bit about some these challenges between an appointment or a democratic process to replace a councilman. We'll talk a little bit about SB 1439. We talked about that previously. It's a money in politics, uh, new law from Sacramento. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the farm and lifetime. We got some new developments on that particular project. The, uh, the local news media was at the meeting because because Poway was putting forward a proposal to ban encampments for the homeless. We're going to take a look at that story. We'll break it all down. Um, I'm going to tell you a little story. I uh, went down to uh, North Park and went to uh, an Archie Moore Boxing Foundation for Youth. And it was a really cool event. I want to tell you all about that. We'll talk a little bit about the the crazy roads in Rancho Bernardo, what's going on in the Westwood community. Apparently, they're finally getting a little bit relief. And then Steve Garvey is running for California Senator, or at least he's considering it. We'll chat about that particular quest of the Garve and, uh, and a little bit about, you know, our good friend Ed Franklin. I talked to him this morning and we're getting ready to plan another podcast uh, for the two of us. So, We'll chat about that. Of course, we welcome all your thoughts and comments in the Poway, or excuse me, in the in the San Diego Community Forum. If you have any uh, questions, comments, hot takes, you want to comment during this live stream, you can just type them in in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. I'll get you involved. And of course, at the conclusion of all the highlights and headlines we go through um, in the community forum, I also take a break and we kind of break down some of the... Um, social media comments to some of my videos and other things that I'm putting out on social media. So that's kind of our game plan for today. So how you doing, everybody? Uh, thanks again for joining us. Um, let's uh, let's get started here a little bit about last night. I was at the Poway City Hall. I, you know, it's kind of like a night at the museum. But for me, it was an evening at the Poway City Hall. And I haven't been to a uh, city hall meeting or a city council meeting in quite a while. But I really wanted to go to this because, you know, I kind of made a big point that this meeting was important, this June 6th meeting, mostly because they were going to be deciding on the process on how to replace resigning Poway Councilman Barry Leonard. And so I wanted to go to that. And, I, and we're going to talk about that particular topic about the replacement versus the appointment or the, the vote in just a minute. But I just just generally speaking, it was kind of cool to go to a city council meeting because I haven't been to one in a while. Um, and it's nice to see, you know, some friends, you know, people, you know, I got the chance to see Pete Neal. He was there. And uh, Yuri Bolin was there, who's been a frequent guest also on this podcast. Um, got to meet a number of other people who I didn't know that were listeners or viewers of my podcasts or my videos. And so it was kind of nice, you know, just to you know, make that connection. And there's one particular lady came up to me and she shook my hand and she says, oh, 
oh, I, I like what you're doing with your podcast. You need to be doing more of this. She goes, and I agree with a lot of what you say. He goes, but I don't agree with everything. And I'm like, exactly. You know, if, if we all lived in a world where everybody agreed with everybody else, it'd be a pretty boring place to live, uh, a boring life to live. Uh, so variety makes, uh, you know, variety of commentary and opinions is a good thing in a robust society. That's part of the reason I have this podcast is to encourage more of that conversation um, and more of that dialogue, particularly here in my hometown. Um, but uh, it was just generally kind of a positive event you know, to go to this. But I'll tell you what, the agenda itself didn't have a whole lot on the agenda. And the meeting was just dominated by public comment. You know, whether they were speaking in the public comment in the initial phase of the of the city council meeting or the public comment around specific agenda items. And for the most part, um, everybody was just kind of angry at city council. You know, there was there's a little I mean, Yuri Boland kind of praised city council on a few things. But for the most part, there most of the speakers got up there and they were expressing their concerns. And it was all done politely, professionally. Um, but they had an opinion on some things. They had opinions on issues that were, you know, in, in conflict or or appear to be in conflict with the direction of the city or the, some of the city council members. And so this is part of democracy. And this is kind of the cool thing where people have a chance to speak and a chance to be on the record. Um, and we saw a lot of that last night. I thought that was, was fantastic. Uh, but it was a little bit odd. And I don't know if you could tell by looking at the photo on my on my live stream screen, but I grabbed a, um, a, a snapshot um, from one of our local news channels, Fox 5, and there's a picture of the, of the council meeting, and you see them up on the die, and there are five chairs, but there's only four of those chairs are occupied, you know, because – Barry Leonard resigned, so his seat is open. Um, but, you know, from left to right, there was Brian Pepin, um, who was recently elected in District 1, and then Kalen Frank in District 4, um, followed by Peter DeHoff, who's in District 3, who's my representative, and then the empty chair for District 2, and then finally Mayor Steve Voss. Um, but it was just kind of interesting to see that, you know, where now there's only four. Um, but still, you know, they got to work towards getting a majority. Um, and, and another kind of an angle to this is that um, there's a, another gentleman here in, in town. I won't reveal his name, but he had been considering um, running for district two in the in the next election or as part of this appointment process. And then he finally came to a conclusion that he wasn't going to run because he just saw that the job you know, for these city council members and the mayor up on the die is being very time consuming and frankly, being pretty frustrating and difficult and stressful. <laughs> and yeah, that's it, true. I mean, I, I'll tell you why. When I was looking at, um, you know, those that were up there on the die, you know, they obviously all take their job very seriously. They all have a point of view. Um, they're all very diplomatic. But you can tell that, you know, this is a job that's not to be taken lightly. Um, I think one of the other outgoing city council members said that these guys put in typically at least 20 hours a week into this job. Um, so it's like a part-time job. They get paid very, very little. In fact, I think what is their stipend they get? It's around a 1000 bucks a month. And I'm sure if you did the math – um, it would probably be less than minimum wage if they were putting in 20 hours a week. Um, so, uh, you know, 
tip of the hat to, you know, or a tip of the cowboy hat to those that actually have stepped up and stepped into the arena to serve. But, you know, it's a tough job. And, you know, you're up there on the die. You're going to be a critic. There's going to be people firing shots at you. There's a little bit of that coming from public comments. And frankly, I do a little bit of that in my podcast. But it was just kind of cool to be there. And uh, so for those of you that I did see at the meeting, hey, nice to see you. Um, and Ed Franklin on the live stream already saying, looks like Barry was not there. And yeah, you're right. Barry wasn't there. Um, so they are now figuring out how they're going to replace him. So let's let's talk a little bit about that, is this notion of how are we going to replace Barry Leonard? And this came up in the conversations at the meeting because they said on the agenda they were going to either appoint someone or they were going to decide on the process to either appoint or have an election. And they invited the people to send them letters. And and our one of our local community organizers, Chris Cruz, she got a lot of people. She's good at stirring the pot and getting people activated, uh, really urging the city council to not have an appointment, to instead have a Democratic vote. And she got a lot of people to send in letters. And there were there were a lot of people that did so. My hunch is there were probably some that sent in letters, obviously, wanting an appointment process. But it's an issue that people feel very passionately here in Poway because Barry Leonard himself was appointed to fill a vacancy. I think, did he fill the vacancy when um, Jim Cunningham retired, I think, or resigned? I believe he did. Um, And then uh, um, we can even look to um, Kalen Frank, who also was an appointment. And a lot of people feel, th- and, and I do to a degree, that by appointing someone, you're giving someone um, essentially a really big head start when the next election comes because they are an incumbent and the power of incumbency. And in fact, Councilman Peter DeHoff said that. He said, you know, the power of incumbency is a real thing. Um, you know, and... and And based on my analysis, yeah, about 90% of the people that are elected and become incumbents, 90% of them end up winning re-election. It's a very common thing. So if they were able to get in on an appointment, which means they're essentially handpicked by the city council, then that person then has a huge advantage going into this election. So that was what was being framed. You know, should they appoint a person? Should they have an election? Um, Some people were referencing what's going on in the County Board of Supervisors, where we have uh, Nathan Fletcher, who resigned, you know, in disgrace, and they decided to have an election. And so people were saying, we should follow their example. But Mayor Voss, you know, he said, yeah, we should follow the County Board of Supervisors example. He said much to his chagrin because he typically doesn't agree with them. But he used an example of how they replaced the sheriff. And what they did is they didn't necessarily go straight to an election. So the direction that the city council is taking is this proposal by Mayor Steve Voss is this hybrid idea that they would appoint someone in the short term. They would appoint someone to fill the District 2 seat that was occupied by Barry Leonard because there's like a year and a half left on that term. And and they'd have an interview process, et cetera. But they would do it with the provision that they would take a pledge. Each of these uh, potential appointees would take a pledge that they would not run in the November 2024 election. And this is an interesting proposal. Um, 
because it's it's um, I don't know it, it's it's something I didn't expect that they were going to come up with number one because I figured it was either or I never really thought of this as a hybrid idea but in many ways when it was first proposed my initial thought was okay that seems like a reasonable compromise between the two but the more I thought about it the more I thought that you know this is almost a decision that's not based on principles. It's more based on political expediency. <laughs> um, you know, if if there was a commitment to the idea of representative government, um, it's particularly a democratic process to choose your representatives, then you'd stick to the principle and go with the election only. Um but one of the concerns about doing the election, you know, of course, one of them always is the cost. Oh, my God, it's going to cost two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000, maybe more. And Peter DeHoff, our council member for, you know, my representative from District 3 was saying, you know, we could buy more gurneys for our ambulances and the fire department, you know, kind of pulling at those heartstrings. But the other objection to having an election is, is that our, our Poway City attorney, Alan, I'm going to make sure I say his name correctly, Fenstermacher, Fenstermacher um, said that they wouldn't be able to have an election until March of 2024. And I thought, wow, that just seems like a really long process. I mean, that's nine months away. Because if you look at the Nathan Fletcher situation, he resigned somewhere around the end of March, early April. That's when he officially resigned. And excuse me, that's when he officially said he was stepping down. Pardon me. He, he resigned on May 15th, uh, but he was stepping down um, at around the end of March, early April. He said he was planning to step down. And while he was in rehab in April, the county board of supervisors decided, OK, we're going to do an election and the election is going to be in August. So they made a decision like in April to have an election in August. That's like a five month window. So why can't Poway do that? Why? I mean, why can't Poway? Let's just say you pick five months. I mean, that gets us right to the November election. Why can't we have an election in November like we commonly do? Is it because it's an odd year and not part of the presidential process? My hunch is there's still going to be elections because there's always things to vote on at the local level, at the county level and the state level. Um, but even short of that, they could still set up their own election just for this one uh, ballot measure. But the powers that be don't really want to do that. Um, now, the vote went down three to one. So uh, Mayor Voss and uh, Council Member Peter DeHoff and Brian Pepin all agreed to this hybrid model. Let's go through the appointment process, try to get someone in here short term that they pledge that they won't run in November of 2024. Um, and then in November of 2024, we'll have the legit democratic process and it'll be a different person and then we can move forward cleanly. But Kaylin Frank said no. Kaylin Frank voted for a democratic process immediately. And I give her credit for that, particularly coming from her perspective. I mean, on one level, she's District 4, and the District 4 folks, which is considered South Poway, have been more or less pretty vocal, particularly for the longest time, because they didn't have representation before we went to district elections. So she voted for the democratic process. And I think also because she herself was appointed, she understands how there's some friction, even still to this day, 
with her existence on the city council because of the process of how she got in in the first place, that I think she understands that the right thing to do, especially for the voters and for the democratic process, is to have an election. And good for her on that. I, I tip my hat to Kalen on, on taking that approach. Now, you know, of course, if, if I were in charge, I mean, I'm just a guy with a podcast, but, but if I were in charge, I would definitely pursue the democratic process. Um, not only because to me, that's pretty fundamental. Probably the most fundamental thing that local government does is have local representat- representation that is elected through a democratic process. I mean, that's kind of the most fundamental thing that a city government does is they have representation of the people. And then typically their actions, their agenda are primarily public safety, which is police and fire and infrastructure and parks and a few other ancillary things. But it all is built on that foundation of a democratic representation. And, you know, generally speaking, I'm not a huge proponent of democracy in the in the most broad perspective. But when it comes to choosing the elected leaders of your city, definitely it should be a democratic process. Um, some people believe we need to have a democracy for everything. I mean, we need to have lots of votes for a lot of different things. Votes by the people, a lot more action by city council. Democracy can be dangerous because democracy is essentially mob rule. Democracy is, um, you know, two wolves and a sheep deciding on what's for dinner. Um, democracy can override individual rights, our rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But I think if you look at it simply within the context of how representatives are 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 um, positioned onto a city council or onto become president of the United States, it has to be a democratic process. But once they're in there, I think they should be tightly limited on the on the on the um, the action they can take. So um, it was a very interesting angle. There was also a speaker from the San Diego Democratic Club. And, you know, just uh, uh, full disclosure, I am not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm politically independent. Uh, but the Poway Democratic Club came up and they were, as you would expect, um, you know, speaking for an election process to replace Barry Leonard. But they brought up in a different angle, which I thought was interesting, is they talked about the changing demographics in Poway. Because, well, first of all, Amita Saravala, who's the president of the Democratic Club, actually, we did a podcast in November, right before the election, about how Poway has changed so much and how Poway, who, which traditionally was overwhelmingly a Republican city, that Republican lead, you know, red versus blue, that, that gap between those two has significantly narrowed. As more people are abandoning the Republican Party and becoming independent or becoming Democrats. Um, I think a lot of that is because of the Trump presidency and and a lot of the recent news over the past, let's just say, eight years. Um, And so her angle was, well, you know, historically, we've often had a lot of Republicans that are on the city council. And that's true. I mean, my understanding is, is that all four of the members on the city council are either Republican or they're independent that lean in that direction. Uh, they're certainly not leftists. They're certainly not progressives. Um, and this, the VP of the Democratic Club, she said, well, because of the changing demographics in Poway, I mean, we need to give our voters a chance because so much has changed in the last, you know, essentially two and a half years because 
that Barry Leonard was elected in November of 2020. And I thought that was a valid point uh, because of the shift. So who's going to be picked? Um, you know, this does this is likely to pass. I mean, I, I think they just did the first reading and then it's going to be officially um, announced at the next meeting. I believe that's the procedure. But it is an interesting angle. Who's going to be selected, especially if they are taking a pledge not to run again in November of 2024? And oh, by the way, is that legal? Um, is it a legal to have them, you know, essentially give up their right to run again? Is that legal in the first place? And number two, can you hold someone accountable to that? Because someone could change their mind, just like former District 2 Council member Dave Grush ran on this policy of term limits, a maximum of two terms or eight years. And then he himself, Dave Grush, ran for a third term and essentially served for 12 years. He changed his mind. So can, is that a possibility as well? Could these pledges actually, you know, essentially be um, ignored down the road? Um Yuri Bull on the live stream says, no, when Mayor Voss was elected as mayor. Again, Yuri, I'm not sure what you're responding to there. I I know I commented for a bit, so I'm not sure what that was linked to in my discussion. Ed Franklin says, I completely agree with the statement that the demographics have changed in Poway. It's very true. Um, It's the demographics in San Diego County have also radically changed. I mean, originally we used to think of Orange County as Reagan country, a very red county. And San Diego was sort of like Orange County light. We were very Republican historically. But over time, San Diego County has become more Democrat. Um, Now I think four of our five elected Congress representatives are Democrats. I believe everybody on the San Diego City Council is a Democrat. And I believe when Amita Saravala was here, he said that there are only three Republican mayors in the county. And he has cited uh, Steve Voss in Poway. He has cited, um, his name is escaping me, the, ma- the mayor that's in Coronado. I think he said there might the mayor in Lakeside might have been in a Republican. And I know Dane White, who is the mayor of Escondido, is a Republican. But for the most part, all the other cities are Democratic um, uh, mayors. But even Poway has changed because I think as, how should I say, the whole Trump movement has alienated certain Republicans to leave their party. I think as the culture overall in San Diego and California has become more progressive, um, that has pushed some people into becoming Democrats or at least abandoning the Republican Party. I think there were probably, there's probably still are a lot of Republicans here in Poway that are struggling with the notion of the repeal of Roe versus Wade. And while abortion rights are still protected in California, I think a lot of them believed that women still deserve the right to choose and they were still Republicans. I think there was a good number of those and and also those that believe in gay rights and that sort of thing, but maybe came from a a Republican position. Um, I think some of them might be feeling like they're being pushed out of the party because of the aggressive social agenda that the Republicans are pursuing. Because what happened to the, you know, the so-called Chamber of Commerce Republicans, the typical sort of free market fiscal conservative Republicans, 
there's really almost no place for them in that party. Um, some are still there just out of default because they don't want to be Democrats and they haven't taken the step to go independent. But because the battle in society is now so so much over cultural issues and social issues, that's pushed people away from the Republican Party. And I think that's why Poway has become uh, much less Republican. It's still a Republican majority or plurality. I should say a plurality in Poway. But that gap is really narrowed a lot. <laughs> Ed Franklin on the live stream says, I think Democrats yell louder. Well, it depends. I mean, if you're out there at the corner of Palmerado Road and Twin Peaks on a Sunday uh, midday, the, the right wingers are out there in full force with their Trump flags, their MAGA flags and their megaphones and everything else. Yuri Boland says Leonard's appointment. So, no, when Mayor Voss was elected as mayor, Leonard's appointment, I'm getting my facts mixed up. My understanding was is that Mayor Voss was elected as mayor in 2014 um, and Barry Leonard was placed in as a appointment either in 2015 or in 2017 um, when when um, Barry uh, excuse me when Jim Cunningham resigned I think that's the sequence of events but at any rate it is interesting what they're going to be considering so I've been kind of rambling on this a bit but what do you think I mean what's the right process to replace Barry Leonard I believe they should aggressively go to an, a democratic election they should try to get it set up in the next three to five months no, no different than what the county of San Diego has done um, and and yeah, it does come of an, an expense, you know, maybe two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars. But their annual budget's over a hundred million a year, so we're really talking about fractions of one percent of the budget. And what could be more important than this? I mean, you know, Peter DeHoff's talking about getting more gurneys for our ambulances and kind of, you know, like I said, pull on the heartstrings. But to me, this is a more fundamental thing. And if they went to this process of going straight to the vote, they could essentially. Um, eliminate that objection that some voters have rightfully had about this history of putting in appointments, which tend to be appointments that are very much aligned with the mayor and other members of city council. And I think this would create a um, an appearance of, uh, you know, kind of keeping the process at arm's length, where the system, the process isn't really trying to be manipulated. Um, I think that could be helpful for a lot of the other council members, especially the mayor, is to essentially just sort of knock that one out of the park. Because you know and I know that whomever is elected in District 2 is likely going to be someone aligned with Mayor Voss, most likely, um, you know, because that's generally the demographic profile of the people that live in Green Valley, which is District 2, um, and then some of the broader area. There might be some angry folks that are still upset about the farm, maybe some former Stone Ridge people that might run for that seat. But I think in the end, you're going to find an establishment person that's going to be probably, you know, uh, sort of blessed by the mayor, get that mayor's endorsement. And that person is going to likely win in 2024. Uh, so in the end, I think we're going to probably end up with someone similar to who they they choose in this appointment process. But let's just keep an eye on all of it. Okay, um, moving on down the lows. Oh, replaced Vouse. Okay, Yuri, you're right. You're 100% right, Yuri. I got my facts mixed up. When Steve Voss was elected mayor in 2014, 
he still had two years remaining on his term as city council. And that opened up the seat for the for the appointment of Barry Leonard. Okay, so I got my facts. There's so many moving parts with all these different uh, appointments, because usually you think of elections on these four-year cycles, and they have this alternating thing where three of them are on one four-year cycle and the other two on a different four-year cycle or four-year rhythm. Um, But all these appointments kind of make you have to – you need a scorecard to keep track of it all. Okay, let's let's keep moving on down the road here. And what do we got next? Oh, this notion of money and politics. And um, I want to talk a little bit about this. And this is the discussion about um, California SB 1439, so Senate Bill 1439 that was signed by Gavin Newsom. And the deal is is that a, a politician serving in office cannot vote on legislation if they've received a donation to their campaign of $250 or more. They would have to essentially either uh, recuse themselves from the vote and not vote at all, or they'd have to give the money back um, in a timely fashion back to that original donor. And this is essentially a, um, uh, a rule that's being put in place to try to remove the corrupting influence of money in politics, which a lot of people get upset. And so Pete Neal, you know, one of our, our most frequent guests on the John Riley Project, he was there with me at the meeting. He went up there and spoke about it because he expressed a lot of concern because there was so much money in the Poway elections in 2022. And, oh, my God, I can't wait for 2024. It's probably going to be more. And so we saw a pretty radical shift into a lot of the outside money coming into Poway, largely, I think, because of all the development that's going on in Poway. A lot of these builders and other people in the uh, contracting trade trying to influence our local city council to be friendly to developers so these guys can get their projects approved. And so there was a lot of money that either went directly to these candidates you know, and, the, and, and by the way, these candidates do have a $250 limit or the money went indirectly in a lot of other places. And that was kind of the concern because these developers were donating money to one organization who I think it was a San Diego Sheriff's um, Deputy Sheriff's Association who then uh, donated money to a different pack. And there was a little bit of money moving around behind the scenes. But in, a, in, in the end, Big money contributors, particularly those that were backing development, were able to put money into PACs, political action committees, that were used to not necessarily support one of the candidates for Poway City Council, but instead to sort of tear down their opponents. So we had big money involved in this. So there, I think, if if a person got elected, even though huge money was spent to tear down their opponent, they could at least say, well, that wasn't me, right? But there's another part to this, and this is part of the reason why Colin Parent and Steve Voss are on this slide, is that some of these politicians have nonprofits. You know, Steve Voss has his Carols by Candlelight, which is his annual fundraiser he does every Christmas season. Where they raise money for uh, Rady's Children Hospital, and you know, it's a feel-good event, and they bring in all these country singers, um, and uh, they have a concert at the Escondido Performing Arts Center, and they get together and they sing all these Christmas hymns and and other you know big hits by these country stars and it's a big feel good holiday event and they raise money and it's a big deal and mayor voss gets donations from corporations including edco who is our waste management company who the city votes on 
to decide who's going to get the monopoly contract for waste pickup. Edco's one of the con- uh, one of the donors to Carols by Candlelight, but so is Sudbury Properties, who's one of the developers in Poway. So is the farm in Poway, which is another active project that's going on. So this is the other part of this that I'm curious to see what happens. Now, when they talk to the the, the, the city attorney, um, you know, Fenstermacher, he said, well, we have a limit of $250 contributions to candidates, and this SB 1439 only applies to contributions over 250. So he was essentially saying there was kind of a moot point in Poway. And if you only look at the dollars that are contributed directly to campaign finance coffers for those candidates, well, then, yeah, it is a moot point. But if you count the money that's going indirectly, the money that's going through PACs or the money that's going to these uh, charitable organizations that are run by, in this case, Mayor Voss, and you know, granted, we're not really talking about La Mesa, but Colin Parent is in La Mesa, has a similar setup with his Circulate San Diego nonprofit, and he's the vice mayor of La Mesa. You know, when corporations and other big money donors are spending a lot, thousands of dollars to give to these charitable groups, are they doing it purely out of altruistic reasons? Are they doing it purely out of the goodness of their own heart? Are they doing it purely just to help the kids? Well, you could say they are to a degree, but at the same time, they're backing a nonprofit that is that is part of the brand of that individual politician. They are essentially hoping to buy influence and get a return on their investment. It's clear that – and this is kind of how a lot of the the way business is done in politics. So the question will become with SB 1439, how far will they take it? Will, will it go beyond the scope of just their individual campaign contributions or will SB 1439 apply to a lot of this indirect – or you know, some would say dark money, but I won't go that far. But it, it, it's, it's this indirect funding that goes to political action committees and to these individual nonprofit charities. If that's going to get mixed up in the 1439 issue, I don't know. Um, but we're going to find out a little bit about it. I mean, what do you think? Uh, but it was interesting that it came up. Good on Pete Neal for bringing it up. Um, there was even one other person came before the city council and was accusing certain council members of, of donating money to help other council members. And somehow that was a violation. And and the the attorney came forward and said, well, you know, it's only if the, for this only applies for in cases where a third party has a um essentially a project that needs to be voted on that has financial implications. So, you know, this notion of candidates donating to other candidates to help them was sort of off, wasn't really applicable, which kind of makes sense. But interesting, you know, a lot of these things coming up, you just kind of hanging out at a city council meeting. And if you're kind of a a political wonk, a political nerd like me, you kind of enjoy it. It's kind of like going out to the movies for the night. Um, Let's keep moving on the live stream. You know, got a couple more things we're going to cover. Before we do, though, um, you know, I just want to let you know, uh, if if you want to get more information about what I'm doing, uh, my website is johnreillyproject.com. I've got all my episodes up there. I've got blog posts. I've got links to my video clips. I've got um, all the links to my social media platforms. And I encourage you to reach out 
and continue the conversation on social media. So you go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, or you can just go to connectwithjohnny.com. That'll take you to a page that has all the links to the social media, including all the links to where you can get this podcast on all the audio-only platforms and on YouTube. And of course, I encourage you to like, follow, share, and subscribe all the content that we're putting out there. That'd be really helpful in kind of boosting this podcast. Okay, let's move on down the road and let's talk a little bit about Lifetime Fitness in Poway because this also came up at the Poway City Council meeting last night. And uh, it, it was it was interesting. There was kind of like a number of different sort of angles to this and, and some of the presentation was coy. But right out of the gate, there were people in public comments that were saying, you, you know, you can't put this new lifetime fitness facility in it. It's going to be 30,000 square feet instead of the 3,000 square feet that was approved by voters in Measure P, the specific plan. This is a deviation um, and uh, just really insisting that this would be a big problem. Uh, not only because the, the people in that community didn't want this big two-story monstrosity in their in their backyard, but at the same time, they felt it was um, essentially, uh, you know, dismissing the whole idea of a democratic process. But Mayor Steve Voss got up and he he kind of laid down some pretty interesting thoughts. And he basically said, he goes, look, you know, there's a lot of misinformation that's swirling around on social media about the farm and about lifetime fitness. And the first thing I thought, I go, well, maybe am I one of those guys? Am I one of the ones that's spreading misinformation? I don't know, maybe, but I think I'm being pretty accurate on how this is all going down. So um, Mayor Voss kind of made the point. He's just like, right now, we can't do anything. We can't rule on this one way or the other. But he did say that if a proposal comes forward, and so far no proposal has come forward, if a proposal does come forward that violates you know, the essentially the plan that was part of Measure P, then it would definitely need to go to a vote because that's part of the whole Prop FF business. But it was kind of coy because he said, you know, no proposal has been made, kind of like sort of like saying nothing's happening. But something is happening. I mean, we already know that that um, Kevin McNamara, who's the leader of this project, is pursuing the Lifetime Fitness Facility. He's spoken out on, he's spoken out at Ethic City meetings. We already know Lifetime Fitness is doing a lot of their own planning. And I know they had sort of a pre-development proposal that was submitted to the city. It wasn't a formal proposal, but it was kind of this sort of brainstorming, idea hashing concept. Um, We do know that Lifetime Fitness has already put out notices to the general public asking for either bids or input on the design and construction of this facility, just mainly so they can have, I think, a financial model on how much it's going to cost. So there's already wheels in motion going on with this, even though there's still no formal proposal in front of the city of Poway. This still, I think, is going to be interesting how this one goes. Um, Yuri Bolin, who I assume is still watching on the live stream, he made a point um, in, in the uh, public comments that really the, the vote was just for, what was it, 192 homes and a certain amount of open space. But the specifics and details of some of you know the adjustments they can make was within the purview of the developer. I don't know if that's true or not. It may be, um, but it just does seem to me that 
you know, the p- proposal that was made originally was a 3,000 square foot fitness club. So we still don't know what's going to happen. This is still percolating. And yeah, there's a lot of conversation in social media about this, particularly with Chris Cruz and the South and North Poway Vote Group. There's a lot of discussion. There's a ton of discussion on, on next door um, about the, the farm um, and lifetime fitness, and as well as in a number of other Facebook, uh, Poway-specific Facebook groups like Poway Underground and some of the others. And then and I talk about it here in my podcast as well. So is uh, there a lot of misinformation? I think there is. In fact, you know what? I should have brought a copy with me. I got one of those letters in the mail yesterday. You know, there's been these anonymous letters that are being, um, you know, U.S. Postal direct mailed to people's homes throughout the county, bringing up some of these sort of conspiracy theories about the Green Valley Civic Association and about uh, Kevin McNamara and the farm and certain members of city council kind of all in cahoots together and trying to manipulate this process to get the farm in. And interestingly, these letters that are going out are are unsigned. I mean, they're anonymous letters, which immediately takes their credibility down to like 2%. Um, but it's interesting that those letters are, are are cycling around. And I got one too, just just recently. I heard people getting them over the past couple of weeks. Well, finally, one of them landed in my, my mailbox yesterday. So this continues to percolate. Um, in the end... I I still would find it very difficult how the city council could approve the changing of the plan unilaterally without going to a vote. Um, If there are like small adjustments to like, you know, lot sizes and this configuration of streets or, you know, maybe the, the height of some of those plateaus that were built for the houses, that makes sense. I think during the process of construction, you learn things as you go and you have to adjust your plan accordingly. But this is such a, a huge deviation. So I think we'll have to go back to the letter of the law and see exactly if that provides the flexibility of the developer to make that change. My hunch is, is that it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I would have a hard time believing the city council was essentially override the public vote. Because uh, I think that would create a huge stir in town. Uh, but we'll see. Um, this continues to be um, cycling about. Um, but it was interesting that the mayor did acknowledge Prop FF would apply. And also, um, one of the members of the Green Valley Civic Association got up and spoke about it specifically and said, if they put in a 30,000 square foot facility, it has to go to the public vote. So in this case, I think maybe the GVCA is standing up um, and stating their position on the issue in light of the fact that there has been this anonymous letter and these conspiracy theories have been floating about. I mean, what do you think? But that's going on in her hometown of Poway. Crazy stuff here, I'm telling you. Okay, let's move on. Um, now, now, by the way, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about homelessness. This isn't going to be exclusively a Poway podcast, but there's a little bit more Poway stuff than normal just because I went to the meeting last night and it gave me a number of things to talk about. But we will talk about um, 
former uh, San Diego Padre L.A. Dodger Steve Garvey and potentially him running for California senator as a Republican. We're going to talk a little bit about um, San Diego Roads and Rancho Bernardo and specifically in Westwood. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Archie Moore and this boxing event that I went to as a fundraiser for troubled youth. It was a really neat event. We'll talk a bit about that. And we'll also talk a little bit about Ed Franklin and our podcast that we're scheduling for next Tuesday night. Okay, let's let's talk now about this homeless encampment ban. And this was a big story in the local news. In fact, there were three or four news cameras at the city council meeting that were there for this specific agenda item. And you you got these camera guys that were there and there's like one or two reporters. And the minute that this particular agenda item, by the way, was over with all the camera guys, they brought their stuff and they were out of there. Uh, They were probably wishing it would have been the first item on the agenda. But this is a pretty big deal here. Um, The Poway City Council essentially voted to make it legal to remove homeless encampments from Poway uh, on a number of provisions. I mean, the, the first being that there has to be beds available in local shelters that authorities can direct them to. Because if there are no available shelter beds, then you can't kick them out. And this, and we're talking about kicking them out off of public property, you know, like in a park or on city hall land or some, you know, some area that's owned by the city, um, trails, that sort of thing, or in public right of way, which is the sidewalk or kind of near the sidewalk around some of those corners. Because we've been seeing some homeless people in Poway in a lot of new areas they've been popping up. Most recently um, along Pomerado Road, right in front of the Poway National Little League by Pomerado Elementary, we've been seeing homeless encampments there kind of tucked into the bushes right next to the sidewalk. Now, does Poway have a big homeless problem like San Diego does? No. And I, I saw one of the reports, I think there are 23 homeless in the most recent survey in Poway, uh, where... Was it three years ago? I think there were 20. And so now there are, no, excuse me, there were 15 three years ago. Now there are 23. So it's growing, but it's still relatively small. But the concern is, is that, you know, of course, the city of San Diego is enacting similar policies. You know, um, uh, Mayor Todd Gloria is trying to be really tough on all this and we're going to clear out the homeless. uh, Because they're just so frustrated with trying to figure out a way to solve the problem. And now they're getting to the point where they feel like they're getting all this pressure from local businesses and local residents that have all this homeless uh, folks in their community and the riffraff and the disruption that they cause says, we need just to clear them out. Now, San Diego has the same provision. They're, they're under that same rule. They can't kick someone out unless there's a bed nearby. But Poway is now thinking, oh, my God, well, if they kick them out of San Diego, where are they going to go? They're going to come to Poway. <laughs> and so we've got to be able to have a similar ordinance so we can have some control. So I think it was good that the city council did this. And they talked to the sheriff in Poway. And I forgive me for not knowing the lady's name, but she spoke very eloquently on the topic. And she said, yeah, I mean, we don't just kick them out. I mean, we're going to talk to them and provide services. We're going to help them identify if there is a local shelter bed available and they'll point them in the right direction. They'll make them uh, 
aware of, um, you know, counseling services, addiction recovery services, uh, mental health services that are offered by the Interfaith, which is the group of all the churches they get together and they kind of have this cooperative group that helps people in homelessness. They'll make them um, aware of all these resources that are available locally that can help them overcome some of their challenges. Um, and, and, and only if they refuse to go to that empty available bed at a shelter, would they ever essentially kick them out. And then on top of it, they would be giving them essentially 24 hours notice to move on. And if they don't move on, then all of their property, you know, their tent and their belongings would all essentially be scooped up and taken by city, uh, by city officials or by the sheriff and put into a, like a government warehouse where it would be, held and held safely. And I believe this individual will have like something like 90 days to retrieve it, that sort of thing. Um, So this was read into um, law first reading and it was approved 4-0 by the city council. Mayor Voss, Mayor Steve Voss, um, Brian Pepin, Peter DeHoff and Kaylin Frank all voted for this. Now it's going to have to come up for a second reading and I think they're having a meeting next Tuesday, um, where this will probably be voted for zero again, and this will be made law. Uh, the media is all over this because, you know, homelessness is such a big problem. And, and again, not so bad in Poway, but definitely in other parts of the county. And I think a lot of people are on one level saying, hey, good on these city officials for clearing them out. But there's a lot of other people on the other side of the argument that are saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, these are vulnerable people. Hey, wait a minute, this is cruel and inhumane to kick them out. I know I'm of the opinion that the people that cause the problem in the first place are typically the politicians and the way they set up a lot of the policies, you know, particularly housing policy. It's more of a statewide thing, a countywide thing. They're the ones that have goofed it up for everybody um, by limiting so much construction. Now, thank goodness, Poway's building a lot. I like that. But there's still a lot of people here in town that don't like that at all. And really, the more you restrict housing, even housing for rich people, that still has you know a cascading effect that creates challenges for home inventory, for low-income home inventory that homeless people can use. So in the end, uh, interesting that Poway's taken this approach. I'm generally supportive of it. And I, I'll see, let's see where this, this whole thing goes. Um, got a couple more comments here on the live stream. And uh, Yuri Boland says, Measure P had only two key elements, the zoning from open space to residential. Yeah, because it used to be a golf course. It was open space recreational prior. And 160 homes. That's it. That's what the voters technically voted on. The rest, like tennis courts and fitness center size, were not in Measure P. Right or wrong, who knows? Okay. Again, this is something that I'm sure the attorneys and all the legal folks will get involved in. Technically, what was presented to the voters and what did they vote on? That's one thing. But what was the pitch. <laughs> and what was the messaging? Some might say, what was the propaganda that was being discussed during these um, town hall meetings where Kevin McNamara hosted it and brought in a lot of his consultants and developers and did a whole showcase for the community? What was promised there was all of that in the bill 
That's a big, good question, Yuri. Um, is the uh, was pro- Measure P just the change in zoning and 160 homes? That's it. Good question. Uh, McNamara said that whatever the voters voted on wouldn't change. Now, the question is, what did they vote on? Now, it's interesting, too, because Kevin McNamara is a savvy business person. Um, And he also doesn't like to be tied down. Kevin McNamara wants to be independent in the choices that he makes. So in some ways, you'd say it's interesting if Kevin McNamara would agree to a provision that would restrict him from making any decisions about the project because he would be the primary developer on this. So maybe maybe that was sort of unsaid. I don't know. I, I don't really understand. I have to go back and look at the actual statement. I mean, obviously, what we saw in our ballot was like two sentences, but there is a reference to a document, and that document lays it all out. I should go back and look at that. Um, I'm sure there are other people in our city that have and could probably point to specific elements in that original plan that can speak to it. Um Okay, let's move on down the line and get in this next topic is this Archie Moore Anybody Can Boxing Fundraiser that I went to on Saturday. This was cool. This was a really cool event, um, and I did, and it involved a kind of a fun story and a great experience as well. So first of all, who's Archie Moore? Okay, you, you may have heard his name, but he was – a fox, uh, excuse me, a boxing superstar from the 1930s to the 1960s, and he is from San Diego. In fact, he had a training facility. I understand up in Ramona, and in fact, if you're ever driving on Highway 67 between Poway and Ramona, you might see a road there that's named after Archie Moore. Now he wasn't in the heavyweight division. I was like maybe I don't know, it was middleweight or. You know, bantam weight. I get them all confused. Um, but he wasn't fighting at the heavyweight division, but he was a legit big time champion boxer from San Diego. And he started this youth foundation called Anybody Can. And it was essentially this group to get troubled youth involved, give them some discipline and some, so some essentially some structure in their life. And he provided boxing as a mechanism to help these kids, to help them channel maybe some of their aggression in a positive way, to give them something to do, to give them something to build their self-esteem, and to provide fundraising opportunities to help these kids that may have come from troubled backgrounds, may have come from low-income families, may just simply needed mentorship, needed direction, and needed some resources to kind of really get their life on track. So good on Archie Moore. And so this Anybody can, ABC, see some of the guys in the photo with the shirts. This has been going on for decades. And now the charity is being run by Archie Moore's son, who was at the event. And, you know, Archie Moore's son is no spring chicken. He's, I'm guessing, in his, at least in his 60s, if not his 70s or older. Um, And great man, you know, he's there supporting his father's legacy. Uh, but it's just neat, neat to see this sort of thing. Now, I have a buddy of mine. Um, his name's Jerry Donatio. And Jerry, good guy. He, in fact, Jerry was the guy that introduced me to Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. And, you know, I do the whole sports podcast with him, with Hacksaw on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, Jerry is a longtime guy in the uh, San Diego media advertising sales market. 
great guy. In fact, he had, now he lives in Ranch Bernardo, not too far from me. Um, and as a successful person in media sales, you know, he knows everybody. I mean, it's incredible the people he knows and the people he can connect you with. Um, he actually helped me, uh, you know, organize having Ted Leitner as my guest on my podcast. Um, and that was in, was it January or was it in December? Uh, not too long ago. Well, he, he contacted me and he says, hey, you want to go to this fundraiser? Um, and I said, sure, you know, because I had nothing going on on a Saturday. And at first I was like boxing. I, you know, I'm not sure if I really want to do this, but I figured, you know, what the heck? Um, and he comes over and Jerry drives, first of all, a 1963 Austin Healey. And oh, my God, you should see this car. I mean, it's a two seater roadster and it's and it's in mint condition. He just bought it a few months ago. And this car is a work of art. It's so beautiful. Um, and it's bright red and shiny chrome. And it's like the perfect car if you wanted to go back in time and buy a little two-seat convertible Roadster. So the 1963 Austin Healey. And you know you get in this car and it's really small. It doesn't even have the three-point belts. It's just a lap belt. And it's a little bit rickety and you know kind of a rough ride at times. But what a thrill. And so we're in this car going down Highway 15. You know, it's 70 miles an hour in this car and the top is down and I can hang my arm over the side of the car and it feels like I could almost touch the concrete on Highway 15. We're so low to the ground. And, and you know, how many times have I driven up Highway 15, you know, and you're in an insulated car that's air conditioned and has, you have your music going or whatever you're doing, you're in a very contained environment. But when you're in a convertible going down the freeway, especially in a little car like that, boy, the experience is so much different and it was fun. Um, and you just everything's different. I mean, the smells are different and the experience is different. And ah, it was just great. So, uh, so Jerry and I, we roll in and we went to St. Augustine, you know, which is the all boys Catholic school in um, North Park. You know, everyone, you know, sort of refers to it as saints. So we roll in there and this organization, ABC, anybody can, had set up a boxing ring in the outdoor basketball courts and they had a tent over it, like a really big like outdoor tent, like you maybe see at a wedding or something. And I'm telling you, this was a first class operation, the way they did this. It was extraordinarily well run and extraordinarily safe. It was 20 bucks um, and it was, you know, part of this fundraiser. And you get in there and there's a legit boxing ring with, you know, the ropes and it's up on a stage. I mean, it's real deal. There's a real deal um, boxing ref in there. There are real deal judges and an announcer. I mean, it was great. And when I got in, I think we missed, there were 16 bouts and each bout went three rounds and each round was three minutes. So every bout went a total of nine minutes and there, and there were no knockouts. It was all done very safely. They're all wearing headgear. And you might be able to see a little bit of it in that photo that's on my screen. And that photo, by the way, is from one of their other events. But the the the, uh, the boxing ring looked exactly like the one that's on the screen. And um, uh, there were 16 bouts. And we might have got there for the third or fourth bout. And there were these little kids. They were like eight years old, nine years old. The first bat match we were there, it was a boy versus a girl. And I'll tell you what, man, it was awesome. Um now, I have this weird 
relationship with the sport of boxing because on one level, boxing is pretty exciting, right? I mean, <laughs> you go back in human civilization, people have loved watching fights. It goes back millennia. But on the other level, boxing is, is, is a brutal sport and people get CTE. People have died in boxing. People, It's like a brutal, vicious sport. But then on the other hand, I mean, there's a lot of drama in boxing. And I mean, boxing makes great fodder for, for Hollywood movies like Rocky. And I mean, there's countless other great boxing movies. But boxing is a great way, you know, for, for people to express themselves, people to build self-esteem, people to take pride in who they are, people to take responsibility for their own lives. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of great intangibles that come from this sport that directly benefit the participants. You know, maybe there are some kids that just need to have more confidence in themselves so they can handle themselves better, whether they're out on the playground or whether they're out in in business. Having that discipline and that mental process of going through boxing probably builds a lot of pride in what these people do. And it's being taught to these young kids at a young age. And they gradually went up in age and it was like, you know, eight and nine. And, and then suddenly, you know, the first match, it was a boy versus a girl. After that was all boy, male versus male. But they're all, it's all run extremely safe. They all had headgear on. The boxing um, gloves were inspected. The referees were really good at protecting the interests of the boxers. And I, I didn't expect to have as good of a time as I did. Um, And then you see all the love. I mean, the other part of it is, is all these families that are there and friends that were there that were supporting the boxers. It was awesome. Um, And, you know, demographically, it was interesting, too. I mean, I'd say out of the, you know, I think I probably saw 12 bouts and all of them, except for one bout, were all male boxers. Um, And then there might have been two white boxers, maybe three black boxers, and all the rest were Latino. So it was interesting, kind of the demographic mix. You know, for me, I live in Poway, and our demographic profile here is is a lot different. So just kind of good to get out there and kind of mix with lots of other people. And the the passion and love that these boxers were getting from their family, from their friends, from their supporters was overwhelming. And so positive, so much good vibes and positive energy. And then there were some cases, you know, where some of these young men that were probably 14, 15 years old, they won their match. And for them, it looked like they just climbed Mount Everest. I mean, they just had this huge rush of a thrill of achievement. Um, and it was great. And, and, and then after the match, they were being carried around on their shoulders on the shoulders of their friends. I mean, what a lifetime moment this was. I mean, it was great. And then the sportsmanship was just over the top awesome. The sportsmanship was great because they gave a medal, you know, obviously to the, the person that came in second place or the you could say the loser of the match. But the loser of the match, every one of them was a great boxer that did a great job, that fought and did it safely and did it professionally and did it with respect. Um, and I, I got to just give a huge props to everything that I witnessed at this event. It was incredible. It was so good. And then, um, and then I got to meet John Jednak. And you're thinking, well, who's he? Well, that's a name that I've heard before. He was another one of these 
guys, Mighty 690, who Jerry Donatio, of course, he knows everybody in media. And so he introduced me to him. And John Jednak was the, uh, the, the news update guy back when I used to listen to Mighty 690 in the 80s and 90s. And so he knows Hacksaw. And so we're kind of just trading some stories with Hacksaw. And that was really cool because he was saying how, you know, back in the 70s, John Jednak was um, working for a um, radio station in northwestern Michigan. And he was able to hear Hacksaw on the radio back when he broadcast in Cleveland. And the signal at night would not only skip off the clouds, but it would skip off of Lake Michigan. Um, Lake Erie and then Lake Michigan. And then he'd eventually, uh, excuse me, no, it would just skip over Lake Erie and work its way over to the upper uh, part of, of Michigan. And he would hear Hacksaw at night. So all these different connections, it was just, it was just a really neat event. So, and then Jerry and I got back in the Austin, 1963 Austin Healy and drove back to Poway Rancho Bernardo. And again, the ride itself was a thrill on its own, but the event was great too. So Big tip of the cap to those folks with that organization. Anybody can, and Archie Moore and his son that are continuing the tradition. Um, Ed Franklin on the live stream says, I'm pretty sure you could see his house from the 94 when we were kids. His pool was shaped like a boxing glove. Okay, so Archie Moore lived off the 94. Okay, so... Where would that be? Maybe in Southeast San Diego, maybe Lemon Grove, Spring Valley, somewhere in that neck of the woods. But I know he had a presence in Ramona. And I don't know if that was after he retired or when he was an active boxer. I'm not sure. Um, Here in the conversation amongst our live streamers, Maria Elena Sulan Hernandez says, I will be there next time, Yuri. Um, So I guess we're talking about the next city council meeting. I think Poway's next city council meeting is going to be on the 13th, and they canceled their meeting on the 20th. Ed Franklin says, I might be wrong about the boxing glove. Yeah. And he says, Ed goes on to say, I remember seeing the pool. Could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure of the details of that, but it's neat to have like a, you know, a boxing legend that's linked to San Diego. And it's great to see that his legacy is continuing. So good on those guys. All right, let's keep moving down the road here and talk about moving down the road. Let's talk about roads in the Westwood community of Rancho Bernardo. And you may have seen this news. This is interesting because they have now finally, finally, can you believe this? They have finally started repairing the roads in Rancho Bernardo in the Westwood community. They needed $5 million to do this. And this is, keep in mind, this is for repairs from the Witch Creek Fire. Remember we had the Cedar Fire? That was in 2003. The Witch Creek Fire was in 2007. And that was the fire that came down from East County and it ripped through the San Diego Valley and went right through Lake Hodges and took out some of those homes on the north side of Rancho Bernardo along the trails, which is east of the freeway. And then also took out a number of homes, like I think over 100 homes, in the Westwood community, which is just west of the freeway near Lake Hodges, right near that Rancho Bernardo community park with all those softball fields and soccer fields. So, uh, wow, they're finally fixing these roads 16 years later. From 2007, Witch Creek Fire, it took it was $5 million bucks they got to do this, and it was long awaited. So a $5.26 million project focused on Rancho Bernardo's Westwood neighborhood where 185 
of the 365 homes destroyed by the Witch Creek Fire were located. So apparently when the fire ripped through there, the tremendous heat scorched the road and melted the pavement, which immediately damaged the roads. But then they had to go about rebuilding all those homes and all this heavy equipment came in and, and that damaged the roads further. And now pretty much all the houses have been rebuilt, I think, except for one or two. And so now they're saying, okay, we can now repave this. But they also had trouble coming up with the money and they needed $5 million. Well, you know, you go back and look, how much is the, the budget for the, um, the city of San Diego? It's $5 billion with a B. So the cost of this is one-tenth of 1% one of the budget. And how in the heck could this not be a priority? I mean, we talked about how the fundamental priorities of city government should be public safety, which is police and fire, and infrastructure, which is roads and, you know, water, sewer, and then parks. I mean, those that's the meat and potatoes. I mean, that should be 90 plus percent of where funding should go for city government. Roads should be at the top of the list. Roads are one of those things that people complain the most loudly about. In fact, the videos I do on my podcast, when I talk about the roads, I get a lot of comments on it because people feel very passionately about having good quality roads. And in Rancho Bernardo, the roads are a disaster. And here in the Westwood community, it sounds like they're finally getting repaired. So State Senator Tony Atkins came through with a $2.5 million grant funding designated wildfire repairs. Um, But then Mayor Todd Gloria got up on his soapbox and he said, I blame the delay on San Diego not investing enough into road repair. Okay, yeah, he's right. But, you know, you're the mayor of San Diego. So you need to be the one driving the bus on this. Um, Todd Gloria went on to say, San Diego's road repair investments have historically been as patchy as our pavement and inadequate to keep our network of roughly 3,000 miles of streets in the condition that residents expect. My administration is moving to change that with consistent, focused investment and cost-effective road repairs. Well, his predecessor, um, Faulkner, why am I not remembering his first name? Uh, Mayor Faulkner, he made a big deal about road repair and they invested a lot and they eventually did fix some of the roads and the one, and I witnessed some of it. I mean, I think it was, was it uh Rancho Carmel road that kind of goes through Saber Springs and winds its way around the, the main post office for San Diego County out there in Carmel mountain. That was eventually repaved um, all the way down to Poway road. You know, that used to be a disaster of the road. And in fact, the road in front of Rancho Bernardo high school used to be terrible. That got fixed. And I'm sure in other parts of the county, there's been a lot of terrible roads that were fixed under uh, a Kevin Faulkner. That's his first name. Uh, Kevin Faulkner's regime. Now, now Todd Gloria is doubling down on it. Good. I mean, the, the mayor and the city council should make roads one of their top three priorities. And, and frankly, it should be one of their top three priorities, not necessarily because it serves the people, which really should be most important to them, but really it's in their own best interest to do it because it's the thing that people usually get the most vocally upset about. And if you could solve the road problems, I mean, you'd be like a hero. So you think, and, and, and we've talked about how Poway has kind of figured this out. The city of Poway has a really good system where they, roughly speaking, they repair one-seventh of the roads 
every seven years. And so they have this sort of rotational rhythm going on. And in fact, they're not starting to fix the roads near where I live off of Stone Canyon Road. They're starting to patch up the holes. And eventually, I imagine they're going to slurry seal or repave some of the roads. And the Poway folks, the Poway politicians have essentially eliminated this as something that people complain about. Oh, well, sure, there are going to be some complainers, but generally speaking, they've eliminated. Now people complain about a whole other list of, of issues. It's typically not the roads. San Diego politicians would be smart. It'd be in their own best interest to do this. So they're finally addressing this problem in Rancho Bernardo in the Westwood community. But why in the heck aren't they repairing Carmel Mountain Road? Why aren't they repairing Ted Williams Parkway? I mean, there's just so much else that needs to be fixed in town. What do you think? Um, what are some of the roads in San Diego County or in Rancho Bernardo or even here in Poway that you think have the most urgent need for road repair? Let me know, and I'll include you in the live stream conversation. Okay, moving on down the list. Steve Garvey, <laughs> the Garv, is talking about running for Senate in California. This, I like this story. Not necessarily because I'm a supporter of Steve Garvey. Um, in fact, I'm not at all, both politically and athletically. But um, I just think it's interesting when the worlds of sports and politics intersect because those are two things that I love talking about. And so here, Steve Garvey, and just to set the stage, some people might be saying, Steve who? Well, Steve Garvey is a Hall it's got to be a Hall of Famer, right? And played for the Dodgers in the 70s um, and was one of this longtime infield of the L.A. Dodgers. It was Steve Garvey at first base, Ron Say at se- second. It was, um, uh, no, excuse me, Davey Lopes at second, Ron Say at third, and Bill Russell at shortstop. And that was the this foursome, this infield that was together for like, I don't know, it was eight and a half years, which is incredible. And they went on to win the National League West, win the National League pennant. Um, They had a great run with the Garve. And then I think in 83, he became a free agent and he signed with the San Diego Padres. And Padre fans were initially pretty excited about this because it felt like it gave their gave our local baseball team this sort of uh, credibility that one of these superstars would come play for San Diego. Of course, Ray Kroc was just willing to shell out the cash. There were still some locals that were bitter about it because he was a, he's a Dodger, you know. And, and of course, you remember Steve Garvey hit that home run in game four of the 1984 National League Championship Series. I remember that day. I was, I was in college and I was uh, the social chairman for my fraternity. And I was organizing a party for our fraternity at this house in um, – in Mira Mesa. And, you know, I'm like hustling, getting things organized for this event. And I remember being outdoors, setting up tables or something, and the whole neighborhood erupted in cheers, like people screaming out of their houses. And it was when the Garve hit that home run uh, for the Padres to win game four of the 1984 National League Championship Series against the Cubs. I mean, what a moment in San Diego history. In fact, Steve Garvey ended up getting his number six retired by the Padres. And um, much to the chagrin of a lot of Padre fans who still think of him as a Dodger. And I kind of agree with them. I don't know if it was right for them to retire the number, uh, considering his background and everything that went on with that. But uh, yeah, that was an event. I and mean, Ed Franklin on the live stream says, I was there. 
1984. Yeah, you were at the game? That was a big game. But let's talk a little bit about what the Garv is, is, wants to do. The Garv is thinking about running to be a senator from the state of California to go serve in Washington, D.C. Because, you know, Diane Feinstein, her, you know, she is struggling with her health issues. And she, frankly, a lot of people think she should resign immediately because she's not um, physically capable. Some might even say not mentally capable of being a functioning senator. I mean, she was out for quite a while with, with shingles and other health complications. So the start of this article that was in the, um, the Independent, which is kind of an interesting publication, um, it says, you'd have to go back a generation to 1988 to find the last time a Republican candidate won a U.S. Senate race in heavily Democratic California. It's true. I mean, I think if you go back to the 80s, they're they're talking about 88. From the 80s and and prior to that, California was generally pretty Republican. You know, Reagan was from uh, California. Nixon was from California. Um, We had... California governors, a lot of them were Republicans, whether it was Duke Majin, um, who were some of the other ones, Pete Wilson, the former mayor of San Diego, another Republican. Of course, there was Jerry Brown, the, the elder senior. And then there was, you know, two versions of Jerry Brown Jr. that were and of course, they were all Democrats, but still a great Republican influence in California back in the day. But California has shifted and become more and more blue over time that now it's like Republicans are a tiny minority in the state of California. Um, You know, we've talked about how San Diego County has become overwhelmingly Republican, even our home, excuse me, overwhelmingly Democrat. Pardon me. Oh, it's become overwhelmingly Democrat now. The whole city council of San Diego is all Democrat. Four of the five serving members of the House of Representatives from San Diego County are Democrats. Even Poway, which has traditionally been a very Republican city, voted more for Biden than they did for Trump in 2020. Some of my listeners, including Mike Devine, are still convinced that that was all a scam, that that was voter fraud, that that was funny business. I don't buy into that. But some people still believe that. But at any rate... You know, the needle has been moving in the direction of blue, not Dodger blue, but Democratic blue. But now the Garb is thinking about running for Congress or for Senate. Now, he dabbled with the idea shortly after he retired because I think he was done playing baseball in 1987. And he was always kind of this straight arrow and was very supportive of a lot of, let's just say, traditional values. So he was aligned very much with Republicans, kind of a Reagan guy. And he often would speak out on politics. But as a conservative, he wasn't too crazy with his presentation, even if the idea itself might have been crazy. He was definitely more conservative and polished in his presentation. And, you know, good looking guy, nice smile, a celebrity, certainly. Um, A lot of Republicans thought this guy had a future in politics. But then in the late 80s, it came out that he had, you know, some affairs and some other kind of sexual scandals that came out. And that really kind of took him out of any possibility of running for office. And I had assumed that the idea of Steve Garvey as a political candidate, that ship had sailed. Well, that ship just came back into port 
And he's thinking about it. And and so he um, has been meeting with voters and with senior Republican officials. He appeared recently at a fundraiser for Republican Representative Michelle Steele in Orange County, where he signed baseballs and talked about his potential candidacy. So, yeah, he's 74 years old um, and he had an 18 year major league career. He was a National League Most Valuable Player in 1974, and he retired from baseball in 1987. And you remember he had that consecutive games played streak. Um, it was I think he got as high as like 1,200-something, and at the time it was a National League record. Of course, Cal Ripken has set the all-time record of, what is it, like 2,600 games in a row. But Yuri uh, – not Yuri, uh, Steve Garvey um, – Sorry, Yuri. Steve Garvey uh, was noted as this guy that was dependable, always played, always showed up, disciplined, guy you could count on, clubhouse leader, team guy. Um, You know, he was well thought of as a baseball guy, as a community guy. There is a lane for him in politics, but I still don't see it happening because California has become so, so blue. So... It says here that Garvey, if he decided to enter the race, would be a huge underdog because the state is now two to one in the favor of Democrats. But his opponents would be Democratic Representative Katie Porter. You may know who she is. She's from Orange County. She's kind of like the outspoken soccer mom that talks about a lot of issues. And she's very progressive and very outspoken. She likes to get and do these videos with her little whiteboard. Um, Katie Porter is definitely not one of my favorites, not at all. Um, Adam Schiff, who we all know, is a representative that um, was very involved in all the cases against President Trump. And Adam Schiff kind of strikes me also sort of as a political wonk, you know, uh, but a Democrat. And then the third person is Barbara Lee, who is a progressive. um, And the question then becomes, we might have three pretty seriously left of center candidates here running for for Senate. In the case of Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee, what would Steve Garvey be? Would he be a hardcore right winger? Or would he be sort of a middle of the lo- middle of the road Republican? And even if he was a middle middle of the road Republican, was there is there any chance for him to win? And I just think it's an interesting idea, but I, in the end I don't think it's going to actually amount to anything. Um, but some of them have said, some of these Republicans have said that the Garve is good on the stump, reminds me of this Reagan-esque approach. I mean, even look at the picture of him there, you know, it's kind of giving you the salute with his Dodger uniform. What do you think of that? Steve Garvey? Now, granted, California definitely needs a functioning senator. I mean, Say what you will about Diane Feinstein. She's had an incredible political career. I mean, she was the mayor of San Francisco, served there for probably 10 years. In fact, I think she took over after uh, Moscone was mayor. And that was when Harvey Milk was assassinated and, and all of that. That was just a big tragedy in San Francisco back in the day. And so F- Diane Feinstein was a very steady mayor of San Francisco. And she went in and and she was, I'd say as a Democrat, was kind of a war hawk, kind of a almost more of a, yeah, like a uh, a conservative Democrat. But over time, she seemed to become more and more liberal, more and more progressive, especially as the state went in that direction. You know, of course, then Barbara Boxer became the other senator in California. 
Remember, we used to have Alan Cranston. Remember that, that guy? He was around forever, an older dude. Uh, but then we had uh, Barbara Boxer, who was another very outspoken um, senator, much more to the left of Dianne Feinstein. But California was the first state in the union to have two female senators. So that's pretty cool. But Dianne Feinstein has got to be in her late 80s, maybe even close to 90. So, um, And she's had health concerns. So um, in my opinion, she should have resigned long ago. I mean, frankly, she shouldn't have run for her last election because we don't want to have an appointment process like what we're talking about in Poway. Um, but uh, there's going to be an election soon. And I don't know if it's at 2024 when that election is going to happen. I assume it is. Um, so we might see more of the Garve here. So um, I don't know. I'm kind of fascinated. Again, anytime I love sports and I love politics. And whenever there's an intersection of the two, it particularly kind of gets my attention. And so I thought this would be a fun thing to talk about. Um, Yuri Bull on the live stream says uh, he should have been a Hall of Famer 20 years ago, hopefully one day today. So he's not a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I didn't think so. I, I thought he was, but maybe wasn't. He's just one of those guys that's, you know, he's good, but not great, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of other Dodgers that are definitely Hall of Famers. Um starting with uh, Sandy Koufax and Jackie Robinson. And I mean, we can make a list a mile long. The Garve was always someone that was, you know, solid, contributed, frequent all-star MVP one year, but he didn't necessarily light the world on fire. And then just as a crazy aside, a really good friend of ours was in my fraternity at UC San Diego who recently passed away. I'm sorry to say he had a heart attack. Um, my friend Brad Wendland, um, we saw his nickname was the Garve because he kind of looked like Steve Garvey. And he was the president of our fraternity. And this was around the time that there were rumors of Garvey going into politics. And so um, even though I'm not a Dodger fan, uh, you know, whenever I hear people say the Garve, I, you know, it kind of makes me think of the times when he played for the Padres. It makes me think of my, my friend Brad. Um, but anyways, interesting times. Interesting times. Okay, um, let's move on. I want to get into the, um, what do we have next? We have the, the oh, there's one last thing. I want to talk about Ed Franklin, who I, I assume is still on the live stream. Let's talk about our good buddy, Ed. So um, Ed Franklin is another great podcaster here locally. I encourage you to check out his show. It's called the Ed Franklin No Limits Podcast. And boy, he talks a lot about it, a lot of great stuff about um you know, overcoming fears and being a better person. And he loves to talk about a lot of things that have happened in his life and how he's, you know, becoming a better father and how he's better in business. And it's all very positive vibes, lots of great um, sort of uh, uh, self-improvement content that I think is just wonderful. Um, and lots of great stories in the Ed Franklin No Limits podcast. So Ed and I have been frequent guests on each other's podcasts. And, you know, our shows are different, um, but sometimes we intersect because Ed's a longtime Poway guy. So we've had some really good conversations. So um, Ed and I have agreed that we're going to do a live stream here on the John Riley Project uh, podcast channel. Um, and that'll be next Tuesday, June 13th at 7 p.m. And we haven't fully decided on everything we're going to talk about, but I know for sure we're going to do a podcast about podcasting. Uh, so if you've ever had interest in podcasting or want to know more about it, we're going to break a lot of it down. You know, the equipment that you use, why we're doing it, the influences that you can potentially create, how it benefits 
the podcast or how it benefits the audience and some of the trials and tribulations we've had, we're probably going to cover a lot of that. But I'd imagine that we're going to get into a lot of other things. And whenever Ed's around, we always have really good conversations. So um, Ed on the live stream already chiming in, love seeing his face up on the screen. He said he just had his 18th grandchild yesterday. Well, congratulations, Ed. That's awesome. That's really, really awesome. So I'm really looking forward to having you here. Well, <laughs> his daughter had his 18th grandchild, not Ed himself. Well, you know, nowadays, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't I mean, almost any gender can really give birth, I guess, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, good on you, Ed. Um, uh, so Ed will be joining me. And so I, hopefully if you have a chance, mark your calendar for that. Tuesday, June 13th at 7 p.m. It'll be on the John Riley Project live stream. Um, on Facebook and on YouTube. Um, but, you know, I may talk to Ed. Maybe we can live stream it on his uh, platform. I don't know yet. We're going to figure that out. Um, and hopefully I can provide a, a, a copy of it and Ed can post it on his channel as well. Okay, let's, um, let's move on. And I want to talk about the San Diego Community Forum. Got a lot of great comments from our social media listeners and viewers. And this one's from Nuts, Bolts, and Tools. Uh, talking about this whole Bally Sports San Diego media shakeup with the Padres. And Nuts Bolts Tool says, Cox Cable is such a ripoff. I cut the cord a couple of years ago, and luckily I have T-Mobile, and you can get MLB for free. Yeah, you know, the world is changing. Like I said, we, we, our Cox Cable bill at one point was like $300 a month. And it was roughly speaking, about 200 of it was for television and 100 of it was for internet. And because, you know, we signed up for the most expensive internet plan, particularly so I can do my live streaming and I have really high upload download speeds. Um, but there was a time, of course, maybe you were one of them where you had your phone, your internet, and your cable TV all with Cox. You know, eventually people left their landlines. Um, but a lot of people now are cutting the cord on their television as well, cable TV, and just getting internet from Cox and then just live streaming everything. And this is this is the pathway I've been trying to pursue because I'm trying to find a way to take that original $300 Cox cable bill and reduce it dramatically. But I now have to pay $180 just for the internet component alone. So I if I want to try to stay within my budget, I only have like $120 to work with. Um, and getting a, a live stream package like from uh, direct TV stream or YouTube, it's like another hundred bucks a month. I love this idea that we can a la carte and just get what we want. Now, interestingly, some people have T-Mobile. So I guess they're just getting their internet through the cellular networks and they can get the MLB for free as part of T-Mobile. Well, good on you. So there's, this is the great thing is that there's a lot more options now. And Cox Cable for some time was a monopoly a dominant provider because this is before wireless. So, you know, we weren't doing the 9,600 baud dial-in modems anymore. Pretty much everyone was on cable for internet uh, and cable is actually cable for TV, primarily TV. Some people had dish, some people had direct TV, but it was dominated by cable. Now there's other choices and that's a good thing. Yeah. So um, we cut the cord a few, I think we cut the cord in October, and so we're still adjusting. Um, but this this recent change is really good. I'm, I'm excited about it. We still have the DirecTV stream. I'm going to eventually eliminate that and then just get the MLB package and just get the Padre games and only have to pay $20 a month. Because on my DirecTV stream, I watch almost nothing else. 
because all my other viewing is either local news, which I can get for free on my Google Chrome stick, uh, Fire Stick, um, or um, my streaming that I do on Amazon Prime and Netflix and Max and all those other platforms we already subscribe to. So I'm looking forward to making this switch. Okay, our next comment in the live stream, this is from Troy Nguyen, um, or excuse me, Troy Nguyen um, Jr., talking about Highway 56. And Troy Nguyen Jr., his comments about Highway 56 were very interesting because I was saying, hey, finally they're expanding the freeway, which I know that our local leaders like Marty Von Wilpert did so reluctantly. But this is part of the debate about what the future of San Diego should be about. And Troy goes on to say, there will be bad traffic with automated vehicles. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the automated EV. I think this is the solution. And I'm being challenged here. So Troy says, there will be bad traffic with automated vehicles. Cars are not an efficient way of transporting many people. The only way to fix traffic is to provide viable alternatives to driving that will get you to where you're going in the same time or faster than driving. So mass transit and perhaps smaller vehicles like bicycles and smaller city cars are the only way of fixing our transportation issues. And again, I don't necessarily agree, but I do agree with some of what you said. I mean, I think you're right that the only way you, we can get viable alternatives is if that they are equal to or less than the time it would take us to drive. And that's part of the problem with mass transit in San Diego. It's like if I wanted to go from my house in Poway, from my doorstep, and I want to go to Pacific Beach and go hang out on the beach by the pier. I don't know how long that would take me. It would probably take me, I'm guessing, two to three hours. Well, I remember one time, though, granted, this is dated, but in 1982, it's 40 years ago, so you know, put an asterisk next to this comment. I had a car and I was a student at UC San Diego and I was borrowing my mom's car for the first quarter because my car was being painted uh, back home. Well, the electronics in this car, it was an Audi Fox back in the day when the Audi Foxes were crap. Audi was a terrible brand then. Um, but the, the whole, the electrics essentially just fried in the car. And I was not sure where to take it. And my stepfather did some research, found a repair shop in Lemon Grove and said, you need to take the car there. I'm like, okay. So I figured out a way to tow it and we got it there. Well, the question was, is how was I going to get home? And I figured, okay, I'll take a bus from Lemon Grove back to my dorm room at UCSD. It took me four hours. I had to go, I think on three different buses with lots of walking in between and waiting at bus stops for the next, you know, bus so I could transfer. It was like a four hour event for a a drive that would probably take me 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes if there was a little bit of traffic. So mass transit's improved since, you know, 1982 in San Diego, but not so dramatically. I mean, even now, like I said, today, if I wanted to go from my home, my home in Poway, to Pacific Beach, it would take me at least two hours, probably three, if I were to try to find buses, unless I got a taxi or an Uber. But when we get to these self-driving EVs, they're going to be like an Uber. They're going to be like you just call, you get an app on your phone and you call or you just push a button, a car shows up and takes you. And these aren't going to be 
big old hopping, you know, uh, Ford Escalade SUVs, they're going to likely be small cars, like little two-seater, four-seater cars. And depending on where you're going, you might actually have some passengers with you along for the ride to make it more efficient because the the algorithm that's driving the automated cars is going to optimize everything for efficiency. And they'll be able to drive more efficiently. They won't be distracted. The, the traffic jams will be m- dramatically lowered by having automated vehicles. And I think in the end, that's the solution. Because if we go to mass transit, um, like having trolleys and subways, the infrastructure requirements for that are massive. And sure, we could use cycling. That sounds good. But the way neighborhoods are built right now, that you'd have to cycle a pretty decent distance to be able to go where you need to go. Now, granted, I could probably take a bicycle from my house and go to a local grocery store. It might be three quarters of a mile, maybe a half a mile. That's doable. But for some people, it's a lot further than that. And if you're going to go grocery shopping, you can't really take a bicycle. You know, unless you like old school, you go like every day or every other day and just get a single bag of groceries. And you have the baskets on your bike to carry it. For the most part, people need a car to transport that. And God forbid you have to go to Home Depot or some other location where you you really need a vehicle to transport this. So bicycles can play a role. Um, Walkable communities are certainly, um, you know, something to strive for. But in the end, I, I, I I still see the future as these independent automated pods automated EVs that can drive independently and take you from your doorstep to your ultimate destination, but also can link up and daisy chain together and function essentially just like a trolley. They can link up and go as one, go as a swarm or go as a long snake down the road uh, efficiently and inexpensively. And then those, those individual pods can peel off and, and uh, synchronize with other, pod, uh, other chains or other swarms as they work their way to their ultimate destination. I think that's going to be a much more uh, elegant solution. Okay, moving on. This one is about my comments about the Carlsbad banning the pride flag, um, which you know, this is going on all over the place. There was a big protest in Glendale, I think, yesterday. Um, La Mesa um, voted to to keep the pride flag, and they've been proudly displaying it. Colin Parent was one of them that was presenting the, the pride flag. We're seeing this involved in some of our schools and the like. But the city of Carlsbad said, you know, we don't want to be in that business of having to present every different commemorative flag for gay pride and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, there is a million other ones that are out there for all these different groups and these so-called worthy causes. And Cesar Gomez says, but the powers that be, the ones that are super rich, but not listed in the Forbes uh, 500 are causing all this to happen, divide and then to conquer. And so I think this brings up an interesting point. Have you noticed that the, the, the commentary in politics, the commentary in our society and culture is overwhelmingly around issues like gay pride? Particularly, when I, what I mean by this is they're social issues as opposed to economic issues. Now, granted, there is some overlap there. I get it. But we're not talking as much about issues related to, let's just say, free trade and tariffs or, you know, there's some conversation of that. But right now, 
we're dominated by social issues, you know, that are involving um, gay rights, involving gun rights, involving health care as a right, of, involving a lot of other things like that. And it kind of makes you wonder, and this goes to Caesar's point, if the powers that be, those behind the curtain, it, this is all sort of calculated. Because look at, for the most part, most Republicans right now are really just throwing gas on the fire of all these culture war issues. And that's why these pride flag bans and the battles that are going on in the streets over these issues and abortions, another one, all these other social issues. That's where all the friction is. And and that's where you hear most of the rhetoric coming from Republicans. I mean, uh, Ron DeSantis, who's running for president, I mean, his whole campaign is based on being anti-woke. You don't hear much conversation about economics, mostly because the Democrats and the Republicans are almost in agreement on economics. They don't fight over it anymore. I mean, there's a little bit of it, but not so much. You know, like, for example, the CHIPS bill that went to subsidize, provide corporate welfare for all these semiconductor companies, that was overwhelming bipartisan support. The infrastructure bill, bipartisan support. You know, um, a lot of these, you know, tax bills, you know, I mean, look at tariffs right now. The tariffs that Trump put in, Biden continued them, in some cases expanded them. Might have shrunk some of them a little bit, but neither one of those parties are for free trade and for zero tariffs. Both parties are for, you know, a highly regulatory economic system. So instead, they've got all this focus, all this spotlight on all these social issues that it leaves sort of the economic issues kind of off on the side. And it makes you wonder, do the powers that be, the super rich, is that kind of the agenda because if you can keep the, uh, our eyes on these shiny objects that distract us, they could essentially rig the economic system to their benefit. That's a fair point. And I think a lot of that happened with COVID relief. Um, you know, $6 trillion in new cash was created, was distributed widely throughout the economy. And where did that money go? Well, it went to individuals in the form of, um, of checks. It went to small businesses in the form of PPP loans, but that was essentially to keep people employed. So in the end, that money went into their paychecks and people were able to either get money for not working at all, in some cases more than they were earning. And in other cases, they were able to keep their job when otherwise the company probably should have closed because of all the economic shutdowns during COVID. So people had money to spend. The $6 trillion just like, you know, cascaded throughout the economy. Some would say it trickled down, but let's just say it cascaded throughout the economy and all this money was spent. And who was it spent with? Large corporations. You know, Home Depot, they kept it open during COVID, but they shut down all the mom and pop uh, retail establishments. So people spent money with these corporations. These corporations had record profits during the whole COVID lockdown era. And it made wealthy shareholders of these large corporations even richer because part of this was to prop up the, the stock market and people's investments. So again, I think Caesar brings up a valid point. It makes you wonder if there is an agenda that we're not aware of here. I guess I'm putting on my tinfoil hat for a moment. But, you know, gay rights is a legit issue. I mean, frankly, I think we all should have equal rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, including gays and transgender and everybody um, in, in that community, in LGBTQ community. We all deserve the same rights to our own life, to make decisions about our own life, and to be treated equally under the law. 
but it's easy when they create all these political identity groups and intersectionality. Uh, it gets us off focus for some of the economic things that I think really deserve our attention. Okay, next on the list is Mike Devine, one of our outspoken folks here in Poway, Ramona area. And here he's commenting a little bit about this idea of how do you replace Barry Leonard? Who's next for Poway? Is it going to be an appointment by the city council in Poway or is it going to go to a vote? You know, we already heard Mayor Voss and the city council appears to be going down the pathway that they're going to appoint someone short term. Get them to agree to take a pledge that they won't run in November of 2024 and then have a a regular election in November of 2024, which is sort of this hybrid model. Well, anyways, Mike Devine says, having my, quote, friends appointed to the city council is more important than elections. If the council wasn't friendly like some, I would push like hell for an election so my friends would have a chance. It's not about principle. It's about friends and like-minded in power. Uh, it seems a little bit of like, Mike, what you're arguing here is that the end justifies the means. That if you get the kind of person you want in office, you don't care how they got there. You don't abide by the idea of, of a democratic vote. You know, Even if those in power that you happen to be aligned with are the ones that are picking these other folks, it doesn't matter what the process is as long as the end justifies the means. See, I don't buy in on that. Now, I'm of the opinion, well, first of all, let me acknowledge your valid point. There are people that are specifically against the appointment because they don't like who they're likely to appoint. Because they they believe that if anyone was appointed from District 2, it would likely be someone that is very aligned with Mayor Steve Voss and most of the other members of the city council. Yeah, that's a reasonable assumption. And, you know, of course, there is this um, very loud vocal minority here in Poway. You know, and Chris Cruz is one of the leaders of that group. She runs the South and North Poway Votes Facebook group. Um, and she's been always rallying for essentially a, a progressive or a Democrat or someone that wasn't a re- Republican to be on the city council, someone to represent in, in her case, District 4, but probably from a more progressive point of view. So she certainly doesn't want Steve Voss, who's a Republican, and, and some of his other cohorts who are also Republicans to appoint another Republican. Some people are saying, oh, my God, we're going to get another white male, old man Republican. And we might. I mean, we'll see what happens. Um, but in the end, I, I think if, if, if we're talking about principles, I, I just think a— Local city government, one of the fundamental principles of local city government is local representation, primarily through a democratic process. And having a vote is the most transparent way to do it. Um, Having a vote removes a lot of the, um, the doubts, removes the conspiracy thinkers from the whole conversation and just sort of lays it out there. And then we all know that if there is a vote for District 2, most likely they're going to be someone that is going to be similar in a point of view as Mayor Steve Voss. So in the end, we're probably going to end up with someone that is going to be aligned that way. Uh, but the appointment process just creates this politicization, this sort of manipulation of the system that creates uh, 
a distraction that really do, isn't necessary, that if they just go to the public vote and just lay it out there, I think that would be a very positive move that would be um, transparent and good for the city. Ed Franklin said, now there is an honest comment. Yeah. Um, okay. And finally, we got one more comment here on the uh, San Diego Community Forum. This is from June Cruz. <laughs> this is, and we're talking about Ricky Henderson. And this goes back to my podcast episode I had with, um, with Ted Leitner. And, oh, man. Thank you, Jerry Donatio, for hooking me up, not with just Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, but also with Ted Leitner. And Ted came here into my house, and we did a podcast together. What Ted Leitner, oh, my God, what a great guy. I mean, the stories he has are unbelievable. And, you know, Ted loves to be behind a microphone. And when you put him behind a microphone, he'll go forever and ever telling stories. And we discussed so many of them. And I think I broke that podcast into like 15 or 20 individual stories. It was crazy. Um, so if you're a Padre fan, if you're a San Diego media fan, um, if you're a Ted Leitner fan, go back and look up those episodes. I think the podcast itself was like an hour and a half. And some of these little bits were like three minutes long. And they're great. And they, they're still getting traction on, on, on YouTube as well. And here's one from June Cruz talking about Ricky Henderson. My favorite player ever is what June Cruz said. You know what? Ricky Henderson, I think, is my favorite player ever, too. And I remember bringing this up with Ted Leitner because, you know, Ricky Henderson played for the Padres. And I always loved Ricky Henderson because not only was he the greatest leadoff hitter of all time, not only did he play most of his career with the Oakland A's, and I grew up in the Bay Area, and in the 70s, I was an Oakland A's fan because the Giants were terrible. I still followed the Giants, but I rooted for both teams. But Ricky Henderson was just an incredible athlete. But Ricky Henderson was also, as that clip says, the unintentionally funniest man whoever lived and the comments that he's made and the quotes that Ricky Henderson has made are hilarious. And, uh, and Leitner went through a bunch of those. And I encourage you to go back and check that out. If you want, if you're a baseball fan, a Padre fan, a Ricky Henderson fan, a, a Ted Leitner fan, you'll love all that stuff. But it's, it just goes to show you. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll probably talk a little about, about this with Ed Franklin on Tuesday. If we talk about the podcast about podcasting, one of the things that's been successful for me is I do this podcast, you know, right now we're at an hour and 48 minutes. Um, and it takes a lot to ask someone to sit through all of this. Now, granted, an hour and 48 is really long. Ideally, a podcast episode is only 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, but I only do it once a week and I have a bunch of things I talk about. So mine end up getting long. But in the end, that's a good thing because I am able to chop this up into pieces. And so I can take one podcast and repurpose it in many different ways. And so like that Ted Leitner podcast, I have the audio podcast, I have the full YouTube video, but I've got 15 to 20 individual YouTube segments that are all out there floating around on YouTube and on Facebook and on other platforms. And to this day, those continue to get views, continue to get comments, continue to get likes, and that sort of builds up the overall presence of my project. And the podcast is one element of my project. Um, and so this is a great example of it. Now, recently, I've started doing these vertical videos that I do on my phone, and I'll do these right after I record this podcast. And these are usually like 50 seconds each. So I can post them on YouTube shorts because they like the vertical orientation in less than a minute. Those do incredibly well. And so, um, gosh, I, I did 
like for example, on Thursday um, when Hacksaw was no, excuse me, on Monday when Hacksaw was here, just two days ago, um, we recorded a number of those vertical videos, and the one that we did about the Padres, we posted it on Instagram. It has like last time I checked, it had seventeen thousand views, and it was only posted forty eight hours ago. Actually, less than that. It was probably posted. 24 hours ago. It was, it's, it's incredible um, how these vertical videos, how well they do. And on YouTube, they get regularly, you know, 10 to 20 times more than what my full podcast gets. And in some cases I've had thousands of views on some of those vertical videos on YouTube. And then I put them out on Instagram. I put them out on TikTok. I put them out on Facebook and Twitter. And I mean, all told, these things get thousands of views. Now, granted, my podcast is kind of a little bit wonky. It's about San Diego and Poway and Rancho Bernardo and politics and culture and current news in San Diego County. Hacks, that podcast I do with Hacksaw is all sports and it's a much broader audience. And so that appeals to a lot more people. And that's why it gets way more traction. And besides the fact Lee Hacksaw Hamilton is a very famous sports broadcaster. A lot of people love him and follow him and have known him for decades. Um, But I'll tell you what, you know, we've got Hacksaw's podcast now in just about eight months is now over 1900 subscribers on YouTube. We're closing in on 2000. It's been doing really well. And like I said, some of the views on the Instagram channel, some of them got over 25,000 on his Instagram page. I mean, it's just insane. And so, and we're doing this with almost zero money spent promoting it. We did run um, a paid Google ad for a while. I think we were spending one to $2 a day uh, to put out a YouTube video through Google ads. And I think we ran that for about two or three months. Um, but other than that, we haven't spent a nickel on promotion. It's all organic. And he's up to almost 2000 <laughs> subscribers on YouTube. And a lot of it's because of these vertical videos. So um, that's uh, hopefully Ed and I will talk a little bit about that on Tuesday at seven when we do our podcast episode together. Okay, friends, um, I think we're kind of near the end here of the John Riley Project. This is episode number 322. I do have a quote I want to, I used to always finish off my podcast with quotes and I haven't done that in a long time, but a really good one recently, because, you know, I'm, I'm probably the last person on earth that has watched the Sopranos on HBO. I just started watching them and I've been in binge mode with them for the last few weeks and one of the more recent episodes that I saw, I think I'm on season five now. So this might've been a quote from season four and it was from, from Chris, you know, uh, or Chrissy, they call them one of the guys in Tony's mob. And he said, and this is an old quote, not from, he wasn't the originator of the quote. This came from someone else back in time, but I heard it on the show. And he said, fear knocked at the door. Faith answered. There was no one there. That is a really good quote to really break that down because how many times in our life do we get hamstrung and paralyzed by fear? You know, we're afraid to do certain things. We're not sure what other people are going to think or what people are going to say. And, you know, you're taking a risk when you try new things and, and we're afraid that we're going to get hurt, either physically hurt or, you know, emotionally hurt. I mean, frankly, me doing this podcast, I mean, Ed, We'll talk about this on Tuesday as well. It takes a lot of bravery to do a podcast, to get yourself and put yourself in front of a camera. 
you can be afraid. You can be very fearful. You might be fearful about what you want to do next in your career or fearful what you want to do next in your relationship or fearful about what you're doing and how you manage your life and your body and a lot of other things. But so many times the fear is something you just make up in your head and it's not really real. But to this point, fear knocked at the door. That's like the moment when you feel like this fear is starting to take you over. And so he says, faith answered the door. So the point being is that if you have faith in yourself, if you have self-esteem, you believe in yourself, a lot of those fears will melt away. So fear knocked at the door, faith answered, and there was no one there. And the reason no one was there is because all the fear was made up in your head. So having faith in yourself, having self-esteem, having independence, thinking in a life of reason and rationality, and really focusing on your life and what's happening right now and not making up things in your head is powerful. Very powerful. And I love this quote. I think it was a great quote, and I think it was very worthy of sharing here on the podcast episode. And uh, Ed Franklin on the live stream says, this is what my public speaking will cover. Good. That's a gr- this is great stuff for public speaking. Uh, because people, you know, an audiences typically want to be educated, entertained, or inspired. Um, this is... This, co- this discussion about faith in yourself, not necessarily faith in God, but faith in yourself overcoming the fear that you create, th- this is educational. This is inspirational, right? People, this is a perfect thing for you to talk about, Ed, in public uh, speaking. Um, I think that's awesome. Again, I, we'll talk more about this on Tuesday. Uh, public speaking is a natural part of this whole concept of being an influencer and podcasting is one spoke in that overall wheel. Public speaking is another, and there's a lot of other angles to it. And I'm looking forward to talking about that on Tuesday. Okay, friends, um, this is the John Riley project. It's episode number 322 of this podcast. You know, I'm going to do a thousand. So I got, I got a ways to go still. I've got to do what? 650, 660 something. I got a ways to go. Uh, But thanks for joining me. Thanks for being a part of episode number 322. Have a great day. And we'll be back at you on Wednesday, the 14th of June, which I think is Flag Day. And oh, my God, I think that's Donald Trump's birthday because I know he was linked to Flag Day. Oh, we'll we'll talk about that next week. Okay, we'll see you later, friends. Bye bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.